Well, amen and good morning. What a privilege it is to be here. I was a student longer ago than I would care to admit in, uh, here in Louisville in the area at seminary, and I heard so many things about this church at that time and that season, and never dreamed that I would get to be here with you this morning. And I am excited to stand before you and share with you the Word of God. That is the only thing that can possibly change us. There is nothing else that has eternal value where we are going, we must understand what it is that God says and what his ways are, and that's what lasts. So uh, without further ado and without a lot of warm-up, because we don't have an inordinate amount of time for the sermon, I want to get right to the meat. Is that okay? Well, let's do it. Let's turn to Luke chapter 11, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 13, but... Not all at once. I want to kind of walk through them a little bit. And I want to begin by, by beginning in, in the first verse in which we find what is perhaps the most incredible request in all of Scripture. So look at it with me here in verse 1. Do you see this? It says, now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now, I, I want to tell you why I think that might be one of the most amazing requests in the Bible, because what is it that we ask people to teach us? So, for example, if you were all into basketball and you could have access to any person that you wanted to, to be your personal trainer in basketball, who would you ask? Do, do y'all ever answer questions or are they normally rhetorical? I mean, it's okay. Like, like if it's just a rhetorical question, I'll, I'll kind of speed up and move on. But, but, uh, but who would you ask? Michael. Yeah, Michael Jordan, right? Maybe some younger guys might say LeBron James. Okay, but you would ask somebody that is incredible. Uh, both those guys are phenomenal. It, if you wanted to be a great painter and you could resurrect anyone from history that you wanted to, who, who would you have as your personal painter, your personal trainer? Van Gogh, Michelangelo, Leonardo, somebody like that, right? Okay, if you wanted to get rich in the stock market, and wouldn't that be nice? And you could have anybody you wanted to to train you, who would you ask? Yeah, that's who I would ask. Uh, there's this dude named Warren Buffett. He started off with no inherited wealth of any significance, and today he's worth tens of billions of dollars, and he made it in the stock market. Hey, hey, what is it we ask people to teach us? It's not what they're good at. It's what they're the best at. <clears throat> there is nobody right now on HGTV that is calling up Michael Jordan and asking him to have a guest appearance on pastel colors and warmth of environment. That's not happening, is it? <laughs> so, now, let me tell you why I think this is so incredible. Do you realize what the disciples had to bypass in order to ask Jesus to teach them to pray? It's the only thing recorded in all the scripture they ever asked him to teach them. They, 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 had, to, they had to have seen all the miracles. Was Jesus pretty good at miracles? 
Yeah, he wasn't too bad. He opened the eyes of the blind, raised the dead. He wasn't too bad at miracles. What, what, was he good at preaching? Yeah, best preacher that's ever been. In fact, if he were here today in the flesh, then I would have the good sense to go ahead and sit down. There wouldn't be much purpose, right? Uh, best preacher that ever lived. Was he good at teaching? Do you know even some secular people study his teaching techniques? He's the best teacher that's ever lived. Look, the truth is that whatever Jesus has done, he's the best at it that ever lived. Therefore, do you realize what the disciples had to bypass in order to select this? They had to look at the miracles and say, impressive, but no, not that. They had to look at the, uh, or hear the sermons rather, and go, that's incredible, but not that either. They had to hear the teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, and other places and go, no, Lord, of all the things that you could do for us, if we could just know how to pray like you pray, Lord, then everything else would take care of itself. Now, y'all, uh, I think you've got a prayer focus coming up. Is that right? Is it okay if I use y'all? I do realize I'm across the river in Indiana in the north. Is that okay? Y'all forgive me because that happens. It just comes out. I, I grew up in Alabama. But, but I understand that you have a prayer focus coming up for 40 days. Is that right? Yeah, in case it, it is right, or at least that's what I'm told anyway. Uh, now, Teaching us to pray is not a good spiritual emphasis for you to have. It is your life. You're going to be praying to connect with God in leadership for this church as your search committee or your, not your committee, your search team forms and you go to look for the next pastor. But I want to tell you what, that's critical. And then I know there are others of you here today in a group this size because uh, in any group this size, there are other things that are happening. There are some here today who are having marital difficulty and you're not really sharing it with other people, but you need to touch from God. Others here today, you're going to be having trouble with the wayward uh, teenage son or daughter, or perhaps an adult son or daughter, and you're going to need a touch from, from the Lord. There may be some here today, and there are, who are facing health difficulties or those you know of. Look, if we take this cue from Scripture, Lord, teach us to pray, it lets us know what's going to happen. But you know what's kind of incredible? <clears throat> I, I don't know why, but it seems that we haven't quite discovered that in the majority of our churches here in America. I just got, uh, Larry came back from Zambia. I just got back from India. I'm telling y'all, it is phenomenal what is happening in other places of the world. 17,000 came to Christ through this uh, network that I was associated with on this mission trip right here. And they will pray usually two hours a day. And that's not including the three days at the end of the month that the pastors are praying and fasting on. They seem to have gotten it and understood it is going to be by prayer. But I don't know, in my growing up experience, I, I didn't really seem to know that. Now, sometimes you hear stuff in church, but I'm talking about really, maybe, maybe it was just me. And, and I guess I should have known better because... I know we all come out of different backgrounds. Some are first-generation Christians. Some have had a family heritage. And, and in my particular case, I not only had the heritage, but, but like my granddaddy was a minister and my 
daddy was a minister. My uncle was a minister. My brother's a minister. You know, we were just kind of eat up with it in the family. And so I grew up in that environment. I ought to have gotten this, but somehow I didn't. And God had to take me on an unusual journey to really drill this down into my heart and my mind. In fact, it began this way. I was 18 years old. I was a freshman in college. I got a phone call at about 10 p.m. at night from my older brother. And he said, John, granddaddy has just died. That was the first person that was close to me in my life that had passed away. And first time experiences, you don't really know what to expect, do you? And so uh, I ended up finishing up exams, and I had two on the next morning, and I got in the vehicle to drive 90 miles to home, not really knowing what I should be thinking or expecting. And as we began to plan that funeral, it was as if God began to draw close. And then when it came time for the service, uh, God just showed up at my grandfather's. I, I wish I had time to tell you a lot about him. I'll just tell you this much about him. He was an incredibly godly man. When he was 36 years of age, he was running three businesses, and God called him to, uh, to go into the ministry to, to be a pastor. And, you know, he really had a lot against him. He had, uh, first of all, he was a high school dropout, had a 10th grade education. Secondly, he had a speech impediment. His His... His mouth was drawn to one side like this, and so when he talked, it was hard to understand him. And he had to begin to get therapy. He took a little, uh, they tell me, uh, a little weight and put it in this side of his mouth, and he began to practice in how to speak, and he worked at things. He, he, he was trying everything to prepare himself, and he decided that he would go get more schooling, and he did that, and then he... Uh, he, he enrolled in seminary, and he would catch a train out of Birmingham, Alabama to go to Louisville, Kentucky in the 40s. And at that time, my grandmother was diagnosed with bladder cancer. Now, what does it mean when you have cancer in 1947? It's not good. And my father, who was 14 at the time, told me, he said, son, I remember the day that your grandfather left. He uh, had this place in the woods where uh, someone had filled a tree and the stump remained, and it was the right height to kneel and put his Bible upon and pray. And upon receiving this news, he went there, and after some time, I don't know, two, three, five hours, whatever it was, he returned. And he called me aside, and he said, uh, he said Bobby, I've been with God, and I want you to know that your mother is going to live. And because she's going to live, I need you to be the man in the house and be in charge while I continue the journey God's called me on. Well, they did an experimental treatment on her, and sure enough, it cured her, and she finally died at age 86 in 1992. He walked with God. He would lose money in, in, uh, in, in the ministry over the next 15 years, and he had his leftover business assets, and he would uh, use the shortfall to make up the difference. And by the time uh, that and by when he finally ran out of money is when God caused him to break even in the ministry, and then by the time he finally died, he owed hundreds of acres of land that God had given him back. In fact, one of that was a private 35-acre lake that I got to grow up on, compliments on my grandfather's obedience. You know, sometimes you are the beneficiary of others' obedience. 
and what they've done. And he walked with God. And at that funeral, God was so real and present. I remember in the receiving line as an 18-year-old, a couple of well-meaning elderly ladies coming up with, with great sympathy in their heart and taking my hand. And they were saying, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I know just how you feel. Except on the inside, I didn't really feel sad. I kind of felt this inexplicable, upwelling joy. Not, not the kind you get, woohoo, you know, like when your, your team hits the, the shot at the buzzer. But there was something of watching someone running, the, having run their race well, having lived their life well. It was as if it was Psalm 116, 15 that says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saint. And as he drew near to put his stamp of approval on a life well lived, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I said as an 18-year-old, if God is that good, I want to get to know him. And I made a commitment that I would read the Bible every day, a chapter in it, and I would pray some every day. I'd have a quiet time that I've heard a lot about. And the moment I did that, guess what began to happen in my life spiritually? Everything began to fall apart. Not externally, but internally. Internally, there arose within me this gnawing, nagging question. It started all fairly small and innocuously at first, but it grew in intensity until it became a full-blown monster. I began to be consumed with this thought. It was what I woke with in the morning. It's what I carried with me throughout the day. And it was the last thing that went through my mind before my head hit the pillow at night. And it was this. How would I really know if I were saved? Now... I told you I had the good church background, you know. I knew the right answer to that question, but I couldn't shake it. And whatever I tried to do, just it didn't work. I, I heard, if you're doubting your salvation, you need to come and, you know, nail it down. So I rewalked the aisle, nailed it down. It didn't help. I heard, maybe you need to get rebaptized. I got rebaptized again. It didn't go away. I heard that if you read the Gospel of John out loud, it will help you spiritually. So I went off in the woods by myself, and do you know it takes three hours and 21 minutes in Southern English to read the Gospel of John out loud? <laughs> it didn't help. I eventually decided I would go to seminary, not because I felt called to be a pastor, but because I wanted to settle this question, how would I really know if I were saved? And while I was there, I came across two biographies, uh, uh, one of them was George Mueller. If you know about him, he recorded over 50,000 answers to prayer in his lifetime. He raised 10,000 orphans. He received the equivalent of over $200 million, and he never asked for a single penny. He got on his knees, and he prayed about it. And I began to say, God, I want to know you like this. God, where are you? I don't know you like that. I don't know anybody else who knows you like that. Show me somebody who knows you like that, or I'm leaving here and I'm going somewhere. And God brought this African into my life. And then later, God opened this door that I got to talk to a man named Henry Blackaby for an hour and a half. And he explained to me the seven things God does with every single person in the Bible. And would it be any different with me? And I went, oh, my goodness. In fact, three of them I'd never heard. One I'd heard talked the exact opposite. And, and meanwhile, by the way, I'm still not sure if I was saved at the time, but I'm trying everything I know to do. And I have decided, even in my misery, I'd rather for my life to count for something and die than it not mean anything. 
And so I was still trying stuff and, and God was blessing it, though I couldn't find him. And I went back and I had a prayer group. By the way, you know what? It's really miserable. It's really miserable when you tell people that Jesus is real. There's joy in Jesus and he can make a difference in your life and you can, he can save you. And yet you don't even know if you're saved yourself. But what I found out, I went back, but I've got to tell you this. I went back to, to the prayer group that I had formed and I said, y'all, we've been praying wrong. And I told him what Blackaby told me. And we changed the way we were praying. And, with, and we saw that over the next two weeks, God answer about 30 different prayers. And, and I don't mean prayers like, well, my Aunt Matilda's got a cold. Let's pray for her. We did. And praise God, he healed her seven to 10 days later. You know, I, I, I'm not talking about those kind of prayers requests. I'm talking about God opened the door to testify to, to uh, people from 22 states at these conferences, and, and, and he, he provided money to go on these trips. And I mean, it, I'd never seen anything like it. And you know what I discovered? I discovered I really had been saved as a child. I just didn't know Jesus very well. And everything in my life was out of kilter. But he comes right out of prayer. What is prayer? Is prayer your list of asking for stuff and you getting it? Or is prayer a relationship with the God of the universe who has called you into fellowship with himself and he wants to reveal himself to you and work through you so that many can come to know him, be impacted and transformed? And for me, it was just an activity. Oh, I forgot to tell you this. Uh, when I, in, the, in the era I was doubting whether I was saved, I kept trying to get God's attention. And I thought the more I did, the more likely it would be he would do something. So eventually I made a commitment. I would pray for one hour a day. And then I would also additionally for the second hour do nothing but read the Bible. I want to tell you the prayer time was dull, dry, dead, boring, and miserable. It did about as much good as talking to that ceiling. But as I began to read the Bible, the Word of God began to change me, and I began to go, oh, that's what God is like. And do you know that you can't communicate with God if you misunderstand what He's like? And it began to change my prayer life, and I began to alter how I was behaving and acting, and it set me up for that encounter that I would eventually have with God. Lord, teach us to pray. Hey, but I got a question right here. Uh, this verse, verse 1, is it, Lord, teach us how to pray? Jesus, we need explanation. How do we do this thing right? Lord, would you describe to us what we need to do and the format we need to go about and how we need to organize our prayer patterns and we need to have instruction? Or is this, Lord, teach us to pray? Uh, Lord, would you just simply bring us to the place that we are motivated and encouraged to go seek you? Lord, would you cause us as a habit and a lifestyle to continually by default turn to you? So is it, uh, is it instruction or motivation? Which is it? You know what's the good thing about the Bible? If you ask a question of it, generally, you just keep reading and you'll find the answer. So let's look at these next 12 verses right here and let's apply that question to it. Is this more about instruction or is it more about motivation? So verse two, so he said to them, when you pray, say, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who's indebted to us 
and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from, from evil or the evil one. Okay. What is, y'all can answer this one right here. Is this primarily uh, motivation or instruction? It's instruction. When you pray, say. Okay, he's teaching us right here what ought to happen in our communication with God. But let's look at the next verse, verse five. And he said to them, so they ask a question, he's answered. Now he's gonna add to it. And he said to them, uh, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within and say, oh, do not trouble me. Uh, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, Though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Now, what is the point of that story right there? Is it primarily instruction or motivation? It's motivation. Look, what is the point of this? Is Jesus saying right here, y'all, listen, if you ever ask God for something and he doesn't cough it up, if you will just be a gnat in the face of God and you will pester him enough, you will annoy him long enough, he will get so tired of you, he'll finally cave in and give you what you want. Is that what Jesus is trying to say? What's he trying to say? He's trying to say, do you understand on earth if there are people who don't want to do things but actually eventually will just to get rid of you, then what in the world do you think your father who does love you is going to do? You, just, you say it's a contrast. If you got this extreme on this end then we, and God's not like that, then, then it gets a no-brainer. What's he going to do? Look, so is that primarily instruction or motivation? That's motivation. Hey, God wants to do something for you. Well, let's see what happens next. Uh, let's see. We're down here. Okay, verse 9. So, I say to you, hey, in light of that, watch this right here. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For uh, some people who ask might receive 50% of the time, and, and occasionally those who seek find, and every once in a while, him who knocks, it will be opened to him. Is that what it says? Thank you. I'm glad one person's awake right there. Is that what it says? Yeah. No, look at this right here. Everyone who asks receives. Now, I don't know if we believe that. Because if we did, we'd have more asking, wouldn't we? And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Hey, is that instruction or motivation? God, that's just motivation, isn't it? Man, that ought to move us, but he's not done yet. He's on a roll. Look at this right here. Uh, verse uh, 11. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Uh, and then evidently Jesus has not read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, because... <laughs> His next line is, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
what in the world do you think your Father in heaven is going to do? How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Hey, is that instruction or motivation? Do you see this right here? Out of the 12 verses, there is a 75 to 25% ratio of motivation to instruction. Do we need instruction? Yes, we do. Because he tells you that. But do you know what we probably need more than instruction? We probably need to Nike it. Just do it. And somehow it's easy not to do what you know you ought to do for whatever reason. And there are times in our life, in fact, probably a three-fourths ratio, if the scripture here is reflective of that, that we just need to be encouraged to do it. So, hey, I just want to ask you, where are you in your prayer life? Do you struggle with prayer? Do you have inconsistencies? Are you up and down and fluctuate? Yeah, it takes self-discipline. Yeah, you might need to know how to do it. I mean, if you're praying wrong, that'll be discouraging because you won't see God do much in your life, you know. So, yeah, you do need instruction. But most of us just, if we really believe that everyone who asks would receive and he who seeks would find and to him who knocks the door, if we believe that, Man, we would be falling on our face. So I just want to ask you, you've got 40 days coming up, right? 40 days. What if you really laid a hold of this right here? Jesus, I just want you to help set before me what is reality. Let's see, if somebody who doesn't want to do it will, what will God do? If everyone who asks, receives, seeks, finds, what's God going to do? And if a father on earth who you know, has a sin nature, knows how to give good stuff. What in the world is your heavenly father who's perfect going to do like that? Oh, God, I want to encounter you. I want the Holy Spirit in my life, like it says in verse 13. So I want to ask you today. No, I'm not. Well, I kind of want to ask you. I'm not sure I want to ask you yet. Because in the sermons, we have this habit of giving this invitation and this altar call, and will you commit, and will you do that? And, and there's so much stuff in American life that just demands our attention. It just pounds us. That it's easy to kind of like respond or commit or promise, and yet we haven't really got to the place where we're really serious about that. Because if you really commit, you're going to have to put something out of your life. And, and I really don't want to, like, give an altar call and ask you to do something and you just do it because, you know, I mean, you're supposed to. Because that would be compounding sin. You don't want to make a promise you're not going to keep. But by the same token, I don't want to give a call that does not give you an opportunity to respond to God. And so I, 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 the altar call is going to be this. If, if you have some type of decision that's public you need to make, like salvation or joining the church, there'll be people here for that, and you come. I want to also, in that call, ask you, will you commit to follow your church's leadership and involve yourself in these 40 days? What would happen if the entire church right here realistically and sincerely got on his knees over four days. God, would you let us encounter you? God, we need a person in your sovereignty to come here 
who will lead us to do your will. And we know that you want to give us good things. We know from Ephesians 4, God gave some to be apostles, pastors, prophets, teachers, evangelists. We know that, God, so we need a pastor to lead us to be on mission with you. Not that things stop until somebody gets there, but obviously God gives that role and that office for a church benefit. What would happen if the whole church got on its knees together for that? Now, what would happen? I mean, you can almost just sense right now that your Father who loves you is not going to give you a scorpion or a snake or a rock. He's going to give good things. So I'm going to also in the invitation, if you're willing to really get serious about following your church leadership, I'm going to ask you to come forward as well. And just to ask you to come and to kneel here. I don't know that you necessarily need to talk to a person like that, but just you and God will come and just say, Lord, it's going to be yours.